If 2021 was the year the world began to turn the tide against the pandemic, 2022 will be dominated by the need to adjust to new realities. On the one hand, there are things that have been reshaped by the crisis, such as the new world of work and the future of travel. On the other hand, deeper trends are reasserting themselves, such as the rise of China and the need to tackle climate change. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and this is The World Ahead. Over the coming weeks, this future-gazing podcast series will focus on the key themes that will shape the coming year, drawing on the predictions in The World Ahead 2022, our annual publication. The start of the pandemic was characterised by empty supermarket shelves in many countries as global supply chains creaked under the strain of panic buying and the disruption caused by COVID-19. The system eventually adjusted, but one thing has remained in short supply. That's international travellers. Planes are still often half full at best, and many of the world's airports remain sparsely populated. The discovery of the Omicron strain of the coronavirus prompted many countries to close their borders. Some, like Japan and Israel, closed themselves off from everyone, while others just excluded travellers from the countries first hit by the variant. But there was one country that didn't have to change its stance, because it's been closed to almost everyone since the pandemic began. China. And it's not expected to reopen its borders in 2022, as the economist Su Lin Wang explains. China is the last large country in the world with a zero COVID policy. And what that means is a single case can lead to citywide testing and lockdown. Local officials have been fired over a few cases in their districts. There is generally a real fear amongst many ordinary Chinese about getting COVID. And on top of that, there is a social stigma. So if you get COVID in China, your whole company is shipped off to quarantine. Your kid's whole school is shipped off to quarantine. Your apartment block is shut down. Maybe the whole district you live in is shut down. And so the shame of getting COVID in China means many, many people are absolutely terrified. And most foreigners have been kept out since the start of COVID. And for the few who have been able to get in, they must spend at least 14 days in very strict hotel quarantine. A few of the country's top scientists have sort of very cautiously started questioning how long China's zero COVID policies can last, especially now that we're seeing other countries that previously also had zero COVID policies like Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, loosen. But even though we've heard from these Chinese scientists, we haven't seen any signs from the government that it is moving away from its position of zero COVID. And I think one thing is that any change to this kind of messaging would take time and it would also be embarrassing because the domestic propaganda machinery in China has spent months boasting of the superiority of China's authoritarian system in suppressing the virus. In 2022, the Communist Party has several important events that it does not want disrupted by COVID-19 outbreaks. The host city of the Olympic Winter Games 2022. Beijing! First up, we have the Winter Olympics that start in and around Beijing in February. 
followed by the annual session of China's rubber stamp parliament. And then in late 2022, the five yearly party congress. And so it's possible that the Communist Party may even choose to wait until after the annual parliamentary meeting in March of 2023 to relax its border controls. But at this point, it's very, very hard to know exactly when strict quarantine requirements will loosen, but there is a feeling that it's very possible they will continue throughout 2022. With me now are Simon Wright, The Economist's industry editor, and Leo Morani, our Asia editor. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi, Tom. Simon, we heard there that China's not expected to reopen its borders in 2022. Some people are even calling it the new hermit kingdom, in fact. What does that mean for business and for business travellers? Well, for business travellers, it can be a bit of a problem. For established businesses that are already running in China, keeping that business going may not be too much of a problem. But if you want to establish new business, it's incredibly hard. It's almost impossible to do without face-to-face contact, particularly in, in China. So the fact that business people can't get into China makes doing new business extremely hard. Now, just looking more generally at this, what has happened to business travel in previous crises and what can we expect this time? In previous crises, business travel has fallen off along with all other travel. It's generally taken a little bit longer to recover than sort of holiday and leisure travel. I think particularly because businesses, you know, reconsider how useful travel is. And I think this is particularly acute during this crisis for a variety of reasons. One, because businesses are under financial pressure, so they're looking for ways to cut costs. Secondly, there's a much bigger emphasis on sustainability of travel at the moment. So businesses are looking at their carbon footprints, and one way of cutting carbon footprints is cutting uh, business flying, if at all possible. Also, there's just a sort of duty of care to their employees. So sending them out to countries where COVID may be rife, simply may not be on for some considerable period of time. But if we look at what happened after 9-11 and after the global financial crisis, one other big difference here is that obviously lots of people have got used to using video calling. The technology is a lot better. We've got broadband connections into our homes in a way that we didn't after those crises. So some people are saying they think that half of business travel could be gone forever. What do you think about that? I think that may be a bit high. Look, no one really knows. But if you look at the sort of range of guesses by analysts, 20 to 25% seems like a more likely figure. I think it was Bill Gates, who has a skin in the game, who suggested that 50% might be falling off. But there's good reason for that. And that's because a lot of business travel, I think people are discovering is completely unnecessary. Internal meetings can be done over video conferences. It may not be nearly as good as meeting in the flesh, but they're much cheaper and easier. Anecdotally, when I've spoken to business travellers, they say those sort of trips where they travelled halfway across the world for, you know, to be in a country for 12 hours to make a presentation. Those just won't happen anymore. And it seems that the business people are actually really pleased about that. Now, this is presumably all good for the climate, but what does it mean for tourist travel? Well, the legacy airlines, the BAs or Deltas or Americans, they make a lot of money from the business travellers at the front of the plane. They pretty much subsidise the tourists at the back. So I think inevitably we'll see fares going up. I mean, the only thing that um, airlines can do is to try to get leisure travellers to travel at the front of the plane, but they're never going to be able to charge the same sort of exorbitant uh, fares that they can to business people. 
Okay, Leo, I wanted to ask you about another aspect of a sort of business travel, I suppose, which is this idea that we were hearing about even before the pandemic and that we've heard more about since, which is the idea of digital nomads, which is where people travel to sort of work wherever they are. You've actually travelled quite a bit during the pandemic and, and worked from various different places. So I wondered what your experience of this had been. That's right, Tom. Over the past couple of years, I have spent time in India, in the US, in various bits of Europe, in Brazil. The most important thing to remember here is that if you're just sort of going off somewhere, spending a week, two weeks and doing your home-based job, that's one thing. Anything longer than that, and you need to start considering things like your immigration status, your tax status. So it's actually less easy than it might seem. There are some countries, Portugal is one of them, which are trying to attract these so-called digital nomads. And that's a, that's a very attractive proposition for people who want to do this for any considerable period of time. But as with so many things, the sort of nitty-gritty of logistics and admin makes what's quite a nice-sounding idea a little more complicated in reality. We also do have these sort of unresolved questions about what the tax status of people who have a job in one country but actually work from another really is. And this is something that countries are going to have to deal with in the coming years, aren't they? Precisely. And not just countries. In the US, it's complicated even on a state-to-state basis. If you are nominally working from an office in New York City, but you live in Massachusetts or in Connecticut, and now you've started working from home all the time, you know, where are you or your company liable for city tax? It's a surprisingly complicated thing to figure out. Thanks both. In a moment, we'll look at the potential for international tourism in 2022. But first, a quick reminder. If you want unlimited access to The Economist app and website, or a printed copy sent directly to your door every week, you need to subscribe. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. In 2019, the most recent normal year for travel, tourism supported more than 42 million jobs in Southeast Asia and contributed 12% of GDP. Since then, some countries have been particularly hard hit by the pandemic. In Thailand, for example, tourism accounts for 20% of GDP, mostly from international travellers. The number of travellers fell by 83% in 2020 compared with 2019. So last year, fearing another year of sharp decline, Thailand began to experiment with a new way to open its borders to international tourists, as Leo Morani explains. In July 2021, Thailand opened some of its tourist hotspots to some of the world. Using a so-called sandbox system, it allowed fully vaccinated tourists to frolic quarantine-free on a paradise island called Phuket, where most of the residents were also double-jabbed. What's interesting about the Thailand sandbox model is that the origins of that were really kind of looking at the success of a destination like the Maldives. Liz Ortegera is the CEO of the Pacific Asia Travel Association. The Maldives was a very unique case because you had one island, one property. They've been open 90% of the time since the pandemic hit, and they expect their volumes to surpass 2019, which is a fantastic success story. The key lesson from that is being able to ring fence a community and safeguard it both for the local residents and for the incoming tourists. And that's really the model that was done in Phuket. Thailand has long been a desirable place for tourists. Many come for the vast area of beaches, clear waters and almost year-round sun. 
Others are attracted by contrasting jungle habitats and the almost bewildering amount of wildlife. Some come back to set up homes there and live out their dreams of setting up businesses and attractions, which has become much harder during the pandemic. We were barely open for about six weeks before COVID arrived. Cam McLean is the founder of the newly established Phuket Nature Elephant Reserve. Everything had to shut down and we had to shut down. So having spent significant funds building the thing, it was really hard to then have to close for 15 months and somehow try to hang on. A model like this is 95% tourism and Thais that live in Thailand aren't really going to pay to see an elephant. It's like us back home going to see, pay to see a cow or a sheep or something like this that we're brought up with, right? So without the tourist dollar coming in, there's no revenue coming into these parks to enable them to feed the elephants, to pay the, the land they're renting and all these other things. So when they first announced the Phuket Sandbox Scheme, it looked promising. Hence we reopened again. We had a lot of people from Dubai, the Middle East, Israel, which definitely had some upside from the Sandbox originally. Other countries in Southeast Asia are following Thailand's example, but up to a point. Indonesia will make it easy for international travelers to visit popular island destinations such as Bali. Vietnam will welcome travelers to the popular Phu Quoc Island. Cambodian tour operators are pushing for a sandbox for Siem Reap to let tourists visit the famous temples of Angkor Wat. Even as new variants appear, these familiar destinations hope to welcome visitors again soon, thanks to their sandbox systems. Liz Ortegera sees the after-effects of the pandemic changing tourism in Asia, at least in the short term. The positive, I'll say, silver lining that will come out of this pandemic for travel and tourism is the interest from consumers in less crowded, less busy destinations. So this will be a boon for secondary and tertiary destinations that um, were lesser known to travelers. And this addresses their interest in more nature-based tourism, more wellness-oriented travel, and I think this is actually the silver lining for the industry. Now, Leo, it's interesting to hear about this new model, but it doesn't apply to everyone, does it? There's a sort of bifurcation happening here. So if you come from certain countries and you're fully vaccinated, you can enter, say, Thailand or Singapore or wherever and wander about quite freely. If you don't come from those countries with which they have either these bilateral agreements or which they've unilaterally decided to allow in, then you're still restricted to the sandbox model, which means you can go but only stay in one geographically sort of separated or isolated place, such as in the case of Thailand, Phuket, amongst others. Now, this all sounds great, and it's good to hear that there are sort of new forms of flexibility and more opening, but the new variant could upend all of the opening that we've seen, couldn't it? Precisely. So this is why the sandbox model remains a very important and relevant one. There are constantly going to be these panics. So it's a matter of balancing risk. Many countries, especially countries in Southeast Asia, especially Thailand, which relies on tourism for about a fifth of its GDP, are desperate to get tourists back. At the same time, they can't really take huge risks with public health. And so this provides them a way to kind of have the best of both worlds. I imagine if there's an extremely risky new variant of which we don't know very much, those countries will still be kept out. But it still sort of allows people from elsewhere to come in with lower risk. You can never have no risk, but certainly low risk. 
Okay, so it just means there are more tools in the toolbox for managing tourism and travel between countries. Now, another thing we've heard a lot about in both 2020 and 2021 was staycations, holidaying in your home country or even holidaying at home. Do you think we're going to see more of that in future? Do you think that's something that might actually stick or do you think that's just a temporary phenomenon? So there's a couple of different answers to that. I spoke to Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb last year, who seemed convinced that this was the future of Airbnb. I mean, even if you go to their website today, they make a big deal out of, you know, staying somewhere close to you, staying for a longer time. And I think they're right that people will want to take fewer, longer holidays. On the other hand, amongst my friends and family, everybody's desperate to go far away for a long holiday and just have a really nice time somewhere unfamiliar. I know we don't really do anecdotes. We prefer data, this publication. Nonetheless, the anecdotal evidence seems overwhelming to me. Excellent. Okay, well, we'll see how the data compares with the anecdotes in 2022, I'm sure. Is there anything else you'd like to add about how we've seen travel changing in the pandemic, whether from the data or from your own experience? Well, there's one big thing, which is it used to be that whether or not you were allowed into a certain country depended on one thing, which was the passport you held. Now it depends on several things. The passport you hold, the country in which you've spent the last 10 to 14 days, whether or not you're vaccinated, whether or not you can provide a PCR test or a lateral flow test taken within the past 72 hours. So it's just become a much messier, more administrative thing to do to travel. I suspect it will be a while before fully spontaneous travel returns. There is just a lot more planning, a lot more nitty gritty to deal with before you can get on a plane these days. My thanks to you both. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. You've been listening to The World Ahead. You can read more about these stories and other themes and trends for the coming year in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2022, which is on newsstands now and available online at economist.com slash worldahead2022. This podcast was produced by Simon Jarvis and the executive producer was Sandra Schmueli. I'm Tom Standage in London. This is The Economist. 